Amen. If you take a Bible in your hand, there are church Bibles available at the back if you would like to avail yourself of one of those. And turn with me to the New Testament, uh, to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, before the Advent messages, we were working our way through 1 Peter. And today we'll be thinking about 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17, which is part of a larger section, which is verses 13 to 21. And we'll look at the second half of this, Lord willing, next time. But, but Peter, starting in verse 3, running through to verse 12, just briefly in summary, he writes one long sentence in the original language. And in, in, those, in, that, in that sentence, verses 3 to 12, Peter lists for us the great privileges that God in his grace has lavished upon his people. And in verse 1, Peter says for the first time what he now says again in verse 17, that if we are Christians, we are exiles. In verse 1, if you see, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that's our identity. We are, we are elect exiles. We are if you like, social, cultural outsiders for Jesus' sake. And Peter wants to show us how do we live out being faithful to Jesus as exiles in a hostile world when doing so can be so costly. And Peter is applying to us the practical implications of the privileges that he's already outlined in verses 3 to 12. If you notice that 13, verse 13, begins with the word, therefore. So in light of everything I've said, therefore, here is how I want you to live. Edmund Clowney said that the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore, which is helpful. You know, with, you know, the imperatives, the commands to obey, to live a holy life, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore, in light of the promises and the gifts of God and His grace, in light of what the Lord Jesus has done, therefore, here is how I want you to live. And as we consider Peter's therefore and the implications of the grace of God in verses 13 to 17, I, I want you to see with me that Peter is essentially inviting us to look in three directions, which I think is wonderful way to look at it. In verse 13, Peter invites us to look forward. We look forward. And as Christians, we are to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of the age. If we're not looking forward with hope, there is no sense to anything we do. Christians, we always look forward. We must. We have an eternal hope. We have a glorious hope. Jesus is coming again. And the key word is hope. Peter wants Christians to have hope. We can have hope. We can have hope that Jesus is coming again. And though they were experiencing many trials of various kinds, there is hope. Isn't that encouraging? Whatever trial may come your way in 2020, you can have hope because Christ is coming. 
Christians always look forward. And then in verse 14, so Peter, Peter wants us to look forward, but in verse 14, Peter wants us to look backward. He reminds them of their old lives before they were Christians. He uses the word ignorance. He, he talks about the passions of their former ignorance. And Peter is telling us how we're to name our old life. We'll, we'll look at that in a few minutes. And he wants to awaken us an appetite for holiness rather than returning to the passions of our former ignorance. And the key word there is holiness. Oh, sorry, I, sh I should have mentioned it earlier. Yeah. If anyone else wants to take the, you know, the kids out, but you know, the kids are also very, very welcome, so... I'm not very experienced at making announcements, so apologies. But the key word there is, is holiness. So to look forward with hope. To look back, holiness, not a return to the former ignorance. And then thirdly, Peter, in order to facilitate that holiness, that holy living, invites us to look upwards. I think it's a beautiful way just to describe these verses. Look forward with hope. A new year, look backward to name our ignorance, live holy lives, and we do that by looking upwards to God, who is the Holy One. Not, not only our Father who loves us, but our just judge before whom we are to live during these days of our exile in reverent fear. So we're living as pilgrims, as strangers, we're exiles. In that sense, we're all refugees in that sense. And we're to have hope, we're to look forward. We have to look backwards briefly to remind us to live holy lives by looking upwards. Look forward in hope. Look back at your old life as a motive for holiness and look upward to God who is the Holy One and learn to tremble before Him in fear. But would you pray with me before we come to God's Word. Lord God, we pray as we read your Word and as we study it for a few moments together, that it would be so much more than just ink on a page, that it would be a lamp to our feet, the light to our path. I pray that your Word would be sweeter than honey from the comb. So Father, teach us by your Word that in keeping your Word there is great reward. And grant, O Lord, that by it your servants might be warned. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's words, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, pre preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself, yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who are through him, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. We thank God that he's spoken to us in his holy word. We know instinctively, do we not, that um, the direction that we're facing, the direction that we're looking, can sometimes have life-altering consequences. Um, think about a teenager learning to drive. I think I will have that privilege in the next year to teach a teenager how to drive. But imagine with me that you're sitting at a junction and you're about to turn and the learner is only looking left and not looking right. And you resist the urge to scream like a girl, I'm sorry girls, as they emerge into the traffic. That has never happened to me, of course, and I'm sure it will not, but you could imagine it, I, I guess, hypothetically. You could imagine it hypothetically. Because the direction that you are looking can have enormous consequences. And Peter is saying to us in our passage this morning that if we're going to navigate lives as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus, as pilgrims, as outsiders to the culture, if, Christian, if as Christians we're going to be faithful to Jesus, whether at home, work, school, university, if we're going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, it will mean bearing the cost, but it means it's essential that we are looking in the right direction, that we're headed in the right direction. So that's why Peter encourages us in verse 13 to make sure we're looking forward. Prepare your mi our minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, there it is. Set your hope. As Christians, set your hope. And that is one word in Greek, set your hope. It's the main verb. So the big idea in verse 13 is to look forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the, tra that is the, that is the direction. That is our tra trajectory. That we're always looking forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter wants us to fix our, eye, our hope firmly on that day. How often in one week do you think about that day? How often do you think about that day? Because that is, where our, that is where our hope is to be set. I think it's said very, very famously and very, very, and very often that the Victorians talked about death and never about sex. And our generation obsesses about sex but never talks about death. But, 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 but as Christians, we have a sure and certain hope. And we're to be looking forward. 
And Peter says that that moment will bring to us climatic grace. That moment, that day, when the skies split and Christ appears in glory. And every one of his people will be swept to be forever with the Lord. That moment, Peter says, will bring climatic grace to Christians. Not merit, not payment. Even after a lifetime of good work, even after years of faithful Christian service, even then, your entry into your eternal reward will be a gift of extravagant grace. Think of it this way. Down the long ages, if that is even a proper word to talk about the long ages of glory, eternity, in the new creation, worshipping around the throne of God and the Lamb, I'll, I'll tell you one thing you'll never do. You'll never turn to your neighbour and say, I'm finally getting what I deserve. You know, like if you work hard for a holiday and you're finally sitting there and you know, the ocean is lapping around your feet and the sun is beating on your brow, you might just be forgiven for saying, I'm finally getting what I deserve because I worked so hard for it. But in glory, you never will. You'll never say, by the strength of my own hands have I done this, and by wisdom, for I have understanding. You will never say in glory, look at what I did. Instead, you'll see that your very best works, the things that you've done in Jesus' service, of which you're most proud in life, are so shot through with self and sin, and if were your Lord to determine the question of your eternal destiny based on your best works alone, on that basis there's no grounds of, for hope at all. But instead we're going to look with amazement at the blessedness we receive and reward for very imperfect works. We will see how our beatitude, which is our blessedness, is mismatched to you our merits. We will know that nothing we have done or could ever do deserves the joy we are receiving. You see, that's our eternal hope. But yet we will hear the Saviour say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And you'll hear the Father speak of it as reward and you will say, reward? Surely it's all grace. After all, it was God's grace that enabled what obedience we were able to muster in life. And now it is grace that rewards such feeble obedience, grace upon grace. And Peter is, is writing to the suffering church in his own day. So he would write to them and he would write to us and say, although you may have come through many dangers, toils, and snares, was grace that brought you safe thus far, and grace will take you home. And so when fiery trials of many kinds come, and they will come, they will come, what will you do? When grievous trials come upon you for a little while, if necessary, as they were coming upon Peter's first readers, what should you do? When you say with the psalmist, darkness is my only friend, what do you do then? 
you set your hope fully on the glory to be revealed and on the grace that is still yet to come. This is not it, dare I say it. You may have had a wonderful Christmas. We had a very blessed Christmas thanks to the mercy and the grace of God. But this is not your best life. If you're a Christian, you will never live your best life here, ever. But you will live your best life then. That is our hope. That is our hope. Anything else is a lie from the pit of hell. Our best life is to come. Jesus is coming. You believe that? Jesus is coming. And that is our sure and certain hope. And that is our best life. The Lord is at hand, Paul says in Philippians 4. Climatic grace, consummating grace will be brought to you on that day. So fix your hope there and press on. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And Peter even tells us, if you look at, back at verse 13, in the first two clauses of the verse, how we to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. He says you're to do it by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Actually, this is one where I actually love the King James. I just love the authorised on this because it's wonderfully picturesque language. I'm sure you know it. In the King James, it says, gird up the loins of your mind, which is a wonderful way of looking at it. That is the picture. It's the, it, and it, it's, supposed to, it's the imagery of somebody in the Near East in the ancient days in long robes. And you know how they get ready, how they run, how they get ready for action? They tuck their robes into their belt. That's what it means. So they're ready to run. And Peter is saying there's no way to weather the storms that will come. There's no way to persevere through the trials. There is no way to fix your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when the Lord Jesus comes again with a sleeping mind. There's no progress in the Christian life with a disengaged brain. It's wonderful practical, isn't it? Peter said, I want you to fix your eyes on the day of Christ's appearing, to long for the world to come, and to get you ready for that day I ask you to engage brain. I wonder if you would agree with that assessment. Because I largely think that our culture of entertainment, of endless, endless bombardment, whether it be TV, internet or social media, I think it has one goal, to kick our brains into permanently neutral. So we're just entertained. And it's like somebody has bumped the gear stick and our engines are idling. Our brains are mentally ticking over, coasting along. Peter says, no, no, look, if you want to be faithful as elect exiles in a dark day, you want to follow your saviour, when doing so will be costly, gird up the loins of your mind. I love that. I'm going to be saying it all day. But gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for action and be sober-minded. 
He doesn't mean to be dour and joyless. No. We get this, well, we get this all wrong. He doesn't mean sort of like retreat into a monastery and never smile again. But he, he does say you need to feel the weight of your calling. We need to feel the urgency of the gospel because if this is true and it is, there's a dying world without Jesus. There's a dying world without Jesus. We need to be aware of the danger of sin. Frivolity is not a mark of Christian authenticity. So Peter says, I want you to look forward to that great day of Christ's appearing when grace will be brought to you. And in order to do that, engage your brains and be sober-minded. Look forward. Isn't that greatly encouraging, though, to look forward? To look forward to the day when Christ will come again. Secondly, though, he says, I also want you to look backwards. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And I think Peter is inviting us to look back at the old life and to think about it correctly. Do not glamorize the old life. Do not toy with the way, ways and the words and the works of an ungodly life. An ungodly life was not cool then, and it is not cool now. Ungodly living was not fun. Peter says it was ignorant. It was stupid. You did not know the danger you were in before you came to know the Lord Jesus. The damage you were doing, the dishonor you were paying to your God. So I think it's really helpful because what Peter is saying is when the old passions well up within you again, and they will, they will from time to time, learn to name them correctly. They're not sentimental old friends that you've left behind offering you relief. They're not old friends that you look back at fondly. They're the enemies of your soul. And they will destroy you if you let them. So Peter's saying, look forward and look back, but name it, name it correctly. Do not be squeezed into the mould of your former ignorance. Do not let the old passions hold sway. And it's a great reminder of us not to look back to our former lives fondly but to name them and to long for holiness. That brings us to the third thing Peter says. He says, look forward, look back, look up. How will you generate a longing for and motivate and propel Christian obedience so you might be holy? Peter says, look up. Verses 15 through 17. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead of former passions, this is the path of holiness. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Look up to God. Look at God in his holiness. You're to be obedient children. Call on him as father. Your father is holy. He commands his children to be holy. 
He's looking for the family likeness, do you see? And here, I think, is a real help to us in our pursuit of holy conduct. Study the holiness of God. Look up. Study the holiness of God. Learn to love the holiness of God. One thing that I've always been impressed by the teaching of men like R.C. Sproul and people like that is that they're, they're, they're always impressed by the holiness of God. John Piper's another one. They just love the holiness of God. And I wonder, do I love the holiness of God? Do I, do I dwell on it? Do I think about it? You know, in my own study, do I love to dwell on the holiness of God? We sing psalms, don't we? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Join the seraphim around the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. Make the holiness of God your great study and the cause of your praise. Because no one who learns to delight in the holiness of God can then be content with ungodliness in themselves. So if we study the holiness of God, then I know the things that I laugh at that I shouldn't, the things that I find funny that I shouldn't. I do not find funny anymore. Because I'm no longer content with ungodliness. See, no one who learns to delight in the holiness of God can ever be content with ungodliness in themselves. You know, they say that you get like those you live with. I sometimes, I love walking the dog and sometimes you see people coming towards you and you think how people dress their dogs like themselves and uh, I don't know whether the, whether the dog becomes like them or they become like the dog but I don't know but you suddenly see that similarity but it's even more pronounced isn't it sometimes in you know I know you know we knew a lovely older couple and maybe you know an older couple who have been married for many decades and their mannerisms their way of carrying themselves have you ever heard people finish each other's sentences? <laughs> you know, somebody starts and then the, then the other one finishes. Because they've spent their whole lives together and they're beginning to resemble each other. They know how each other work. There's a great game called um, um, Compatibility, isn't it? Compatibility. And uh, if you're a married couple, I really suggest you play, play Compatibility. Because you, you, you play as a married couple, or you can play as any kind of couple against, against, against some, someone else, and you try and work out how each other work. It doesn't always work, though, because we played with a, a couple, couple from, a different, from a different culture who then played it one time, and they, and they took it quite seriously, and then said, we're never going to play that again, because it's just shown how incompatible we really are. So, um, but, but, I mean, the, the, the more... You know, the more you spend time together is that the more you resemble each other. And you begin to fit together. You go together. You see, and Paul, Peter is saying that the God who has called you and adopted you and made you his children, in whose household you've come to dwell by his grace, God is holy. If you live close to him, you'll begin to bear the family likeness. Isn't that great? If you live close to him, you'll begin to resemble him. 
and to help with yet another layer of motivation and incentive. In verse 17, this God who is our Father, who has adopted us, the Holy One, Peter says is still also our judge. Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It's a solemn thought, is it not? It's a subject we do not often attain, in, entertain, but beloved in Christ, we do need to face it. That you and I will stand before God at the judgment seat. And we will not escape a judgment according to works. Now, hang on, Peter. Hang on, Peter. In verse 13, you said it will be all grace. The grace that is brought to you when Jesus comes. And now Peter's saying, when we stand before God in judgment, it's going to be according to deeds. How do you hold those two things together? Peter gives us some help, I think, in the context. Because in verse 18, it's really clear that Peter understands that our sin is paid for in full. Praise the Lord. Our sin is paid for in full. Verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. That's why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Believer in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I have wonderfully good news for you. If you are a believer today, your sin is paid for. It is paid for. It is finished. Paid in full. The debt has been cancelled. The guilt has been removed. Sin atoned for. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So there is no double jeopardy in the heavenly tribunal. When you stand before God, there is no question of your sin being counted against you because your sin has been judged in Jesus Christ. Your sin was nailed to the cross. So what does it mean then to be judged according to deeds? We will not be judged according to our sin. We'll be judged according to our deeds. And when the last judgment comes and the book is opened and the vast assembly that no one can number is gathered around the judgment seat of God, waiting for the divine verdict, it's not the sins of Christians, it's not the sins of believers, but your works will be counted. Not as the reason, not as the ground upon which God will bestow salvation, but it's the evidence that grace has accomplished its work. The evidence that God's promises are true. The evidence that his actions for us and in us, for our salvation, is trustworthy. His righteousness shown. Every mouth stopped and the glory goes to him alone. Our sins will not be judged because they have been judged at the cross but our grace-produced, Holy Spirit-wrought good works will be judged. And Peter is saying that there's an awesome gravity to that that ought to weigh on us if we are believers. Robert Layton, who was the Anglican Bishop of Glasgow in the 17th century in Scotland, 
he said, this verse is teaching us, I will not sin because my father is my judge, but for my frailties, so when I stumble and fall, when I do sin, I will hope for mercy because my judge is also my father. The verse is saying, because the father is judge, I tremble at the thought of transgression is law. I love him, so I fear him. And in awe of his majesty, my heart shrinks from betraying him. I will not sin because my father is a just judge, but for my frailties when I do sin, I do not fall into despair, but I have hope in his mercy because my judge is still my father in Jesus Christ. Which is Peter's point in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear. Peter's not talking about spiritual uncertainty and abject terror. Peter is not talking about the fear that is appropriate if you're not a Christian. My dear friend, if you're not a Christian today, what we're talking about ought to strike terror into your heart. Because God is just and holy and you will stand before him at the last day. And unless you find in Jesus Christ a redeemer and a rescuer and a deliverer, you'll stand exposed to his righteous wrath. That is something before which we ought to tremble. But the fear in the heart of a child of God is not terror of judgment, but it is the fear that should fill our hearts at the thought of betraying his love. We know him to be holy. We want the world to see in our lives an echo, that family likeness. And when we stand on the last day, we want our lives to match our profession and say God is good and just and right and look at what he has done in me in testimony to his goodness and grace. So we live here in holy fear. It is right to fear God in a right way. We are very uncomfortable with that vocabulary because we've been taught in this age that God is love and God is love. God is love. And we focus on God's kindness. But the Bible is full of references to the fear of God. We're, we're in serious spiritual trouble if we do not fear God rightly. Not terror, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord says, I will fight tooth and nail to kill my sin because Father is judge. And when I do sin, I will hope in his mercy because my judge is my Father. It's tremendously encouraging. Peter says, look forward. There is grace coming. That's our trajectory. There is grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My friends, what a day that will be. What a day that will be when Jesus returns. I do not know if, we'll, if, 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 if that will be our portion, if we will be here when Christ returns or whether he will call us home first. But what a day that will be when every tear will be wiped away and we will shine with the reflected brilliance of our glorious Redeemer. We look forward to that day and we look backwards. We remember the old life. Do not glamorize it. Do not long for it. Our old life is not our friend. 
Our old life is our enemy. And look up. See the one seated on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. And live close to him. So you might become like him. Spend time with him. So you might reflect the family likeness. And remember your father is your judge. That you may live through the time of your exile in holy fear. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord God, deliver us from presumption. Abba Father, forgive us for dull minds, for worldliness, for not setting our eyes on the grace to be revealed at the coming of Christ. We thank you, Father, that you love us, that you've provided atonement for our sin in Jesus. We rest our faith there and find peace. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now we're going to close.